everyone. Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. I'm Ashlyn Phelps, the Communications Coordinator at High Point Church. One of High Point's main values is contextualization, which involves answering questions that people are actually asking about the gospel, faith, and Jesus. The unchanging truth of the gospel must be expressed and proclaimed in ways that can meet the people that we're trying to reach. One of those populations is the students at UW-Madison, since we're geographically pretty close to campus. Today, Nick and Jill have teamed up with Joel Bolivian, a High Point attender and a philosophy PhD student at UW-Madison, to answer the top three apologetics questions that he hears on campus. Joel does an excellent job of talking about really complex ideas in a conversational, personable, and understandable way. So we're really excited to have him on this episode. As always, if you have any questions from listening to this episode, email us at podcast at highpointchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Hello, and welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. My name is Jill Reese, and I'm Pastor Nick's Content and Ministry Coordinator. I'm here with Nick, our lead pastor. Hey, guys. And we have a guest today. Um, Joel Bolivian is with us. He is an attender at High Point Church, and he's been teaching a class on ethics that got interrupted by COVID, actually, unfortunately. Um, But he's here with us today to talk about the top three apologetics questions on campus. So Joel, why don't you introduce us to yourself a little bit? Yeah, well, first of all, let me just say that it's super great to be here. Um, I'm like really honored and even a little bit nervous to be on the Engage and Equip podcast. Like this is legendary. This is legendary legendary (laughs) at High Point. So in my mind, at least. Thank you. (laughs) We both giggle, but yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. You you guys are doing outstanding work. Um, So yeah, my name is Joel and I'm a PhD student studying philosophy and I'm heading into my fourth year of the program. Usually it takes about five to five to seven years to finish a PhD in Mm -hmm. philosophy. Um, And just, I guess it's worth kind of saying a little bit about what philosophy is really quick. just like as a preface to why I have to explain this, I, I'll never forget this incident. Um, back at my alma mater, Western Michigan University, I was in the library looking for a philosophy book. I go up to the librarian and I said, hey, um, I'm looking for this book. And she's like, interesting, like, what do you study? And I was like, oh, I study philosophy. And they, they heard psychology. Oh, and yeah. so they're like, oh my gosh, like I'm in sociology, mm-hmm. like we're in the same field, basically. Like we really get like those of us in the social sciences have to stick together. And I'm not kidding you. This was probably like the fifth time this had happened where someone heard philosophy, but really interpreted it and interpreted it as psychology. Hmm. Um, so that's pretty easy to like confuse them. I totally get that. But philosophy is just sort of the systematic study of life's big questions. Um, you know, why do we exist? Does God exist? <clears throat> what does morality require of us? Where does morality even come from? those sorts of things. So yeah, I do research in justice, privilege, um, philosophy of religion, uh, arguments for God's existence, and then theories of rationality and knowledge. So yeah, it's awesome. High point's great. And I'm, I'm happy to, to be an attender. I think for listeners, I think it's helpful to just say etymologically, philosophy is built on the Greek words, philosophos, philos meaning love. And so Sophia being wisdom. Mm. So it, like in its most general sense, it's the pursuit of wisdom through rational thinking because we want to love wisdom rightly in our lives. And so seeing that way, it can be seen as a pursuit of Christian discipleship, I think. Mm-hmm. And um, Joel was talking about this a little bit before we started recording, but over the last 30 or 40 years, there's been a huge renaissance in Christians being involved in philosophy, especially in the United States. But 
especially but in the Anglosphere especially. And um, Western Michigan actually was one of the undergraduate schools in which um, that was kind of known for that. But oh, but we were just talking about Keith Yandel, who was a philosopher at UW Madison, mm-hmm. and um, was one of the maybe top three or four people in that early Renaissance, along with Alvin Plantinga and Nicholas Walterstorff. Yeah, and some others. And I have to I have to put a plug in for for Richard Swinburne. Um, yes. formerly at Oxford. Um, yeah. So there, it's it's just so it's so interesting because even within this Renaissance that started in the late 20th century, um, there are different traditions and schools of thought amongst Christian thinkers. Mm-hmm. Like Al- Alvin Plantinga's way of defending Christianity is substantively different than Richard Swinburne's way of defending Christianity and thinking about mm-hmm. God. Um, they all converge on similar conclusions, but get there differently. And um, yeah, so it's it's just remarkable what's happening and how the discipline has changed. So it's actually very exciting. It's a very exciting time to do philosophy as a Christian. I think a lot of people are nervous about philosophy. Um, sometimes when people early on, when people heard that I was studying philosophy, they would kind of express some concern and be like, "Well, mm-hmm. there's a lot of skepticism in philosophy," and they're completely right. Most philosophers are skeptics, um, but. Again, we're living in this um, this era of philosophy where there's been mass mass publications um, thinking about the traditional arguments for and against God's existence. Really interesting developments of new ones, um, and so I don't know. There's just so much that's being done at the intersection of Christianity and philosophy. So there's a lot of hope there as well for for belief. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Nick, why don't you talk a little bit about why you wanted to bring Joel on for this topic? and why this topic is important of the top three apologetics questions on campus. Um, because I, a lot, in a lot of ways, what's, what goes on on campus is going to be what's going on for everybody else mm-hmm. in a few years, if not already. And it also um, is part of how you try to substantively be a multi-ethnic, or not, not multi-ethnic, in this case, multi-generational church. Mm-hmm. So people like me, I'm in my 40s, so I'm like in, in my middle ages, right? And it's been a while. It's been more than 20 years since I was in college. And the, the, the big questions on campus when I was in college are different than the ones now, slightly, um, and different from those who went to college 20 years before me. And so understanding um, where people are coming from mm-hmm. and um, how those questions are formed and what they're doing gives you a, a, just a better sense of how to talk to people, why you talk the way you do, um, why your preacher is talking the way he's talking sometimes or not. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, trying to stay connected to that one helps us talk with younger people, which we should want to do. But I think it also um, causes us, we should all be grappling with those questions too, because they matter mm-hmm. and they're going to matter more usually mm-hmm. soon, sooner rather than later. Do you think it's true that even if someone might not think they're an intellectual and might not have thought of these questions in particular, it's a foundation for the belief systems of our culture right now. So like yeah. even like my neighbor might not be asking these questions, but they're like in there somewhere in their, their assumptions system. about these questions right. are often mm-hmm. going to be really strong. Right. Yeah, yeah. In sociology that they'll, they'll call this like plausibility structures or things like that. Like there's a whole structure of way you think about things mm-hmm. that make some things sound really plausible and others sound really unplausible. So like if you take a progressive, person politically and you have them listen to Fox news, they will think everything that comes out of the speaker's mouth on the television sounds utterly ridiculous and couldn't possibly be true. And if you take somebody who like is a very conservative or um, a certain kind of Republican, let's say 
and you have them listen to Fox News, they'll find almost everything said by the person speaking on the television mm. like imminently believable. And then you could flip that around for like a CNN, and it would it would be a similar experience, right? Why is that? Well, it's because there's all these assumptions that are already in place, making some things sound plausible and other things sound implausible. And so it's one of the reasons why when people are like, "Why would you say PhD philosophy?" Well, it's because if we don't spend any time working on the the family or the um, the landscape of assumptions. Mm-hmm. then the truths that we state become less and less plausible in the minds of people. They don't become less any less true. Right. But culturally right. speaking, they become much less plausible and people find them less believable. Mm-hmm. Now, some people will say, well, isn't faith a miracle though? Isn't, isn't faith a work of the power of God? So wh- why do plausibility structures matter? And it's, in some way, I suppose that's part of the spiritual mystery of how God persuades people and how he uses the, the nature of our reasoning and and the work of his miraculous power in persuasion. And the, the, but the Bible tells us to make the best reason defense we can. Mm-hmm. And so we're responsible to do what we're told, not what we can conceptualize that we're not told. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important to try to get at some of these assumptions. And in, in most cases, when we talk with people about the Lord, it's foolish. And I, I don't want to say it too strongly, but it can be foolish to just start out with, well, Jesus died for your sins. In, in many cases, you have to like do what Francis Schaeffer used to call pre-evangelism, mm-hmm. which is to work on the structures of thought and what they find possible so that you can insert what is true. Mm-hmm. And in a city like Madison, you're going to be doing a lot of like, well, these questions, is religion opposed to science entirely? Because I believe in science. And if religion is opposed to science, right. I don't believe in religion. Period. Full stop. I don't believe mm-hmm. in oppression. I think oppression and bigotry is wrong. So if religion entails oppression and bigotry, I'm not for religion. And if mm-hmm. Jesus is for that, I'm not for Jesus, right? And so untying and unhooking those and dealing with the presumptions, which I would argue to a certain extent are even bigotries. Mm-hmm. Dealing with those is important if you're going to do evangelism. The pre-evangelism has to be done to open up the plausibility structures to say the truth in a way that's plausible and believable and persuasive. Yes. yes. Sorry, Joel. Yes, Joel. Yeah, I just had a thought about that. And I think a lot of what you're saying is totally right. Um I think too that apologetics or defending the faith is going to be really valuable for some people and maybe not so valuable for others. Um, I think there's a role for personality to play here. Um, I have friends who either they have the gift of faith or, um, or they're just not particularly interested in like the rational evaluation of their faith. But yeah, there's very little that would shake their faith, very little as far as evidential consideration that makes a difference to their faith. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's great. I mean, maybe that's a, that's a perfectly legitimate way of being in the world. Um, maybe part of their discipleship journey requires that they, that they take more care for those things. Um, because as Nick is saying, even if, um, even if evidence isn't particularly what sustains their faith, it might be really important to their friends or to their kids mm-hmm. or to their family, some other family member. And so out of love for others, it might be important mm-hmm. for us to think about apologetics. On the other hand, I have friends whose personalities are such that the evidence makes a world of difference. They, they have this insatiable desire to understand. Um, you know, I'm thinking about a lot of like fives on the Enneagram. They want mm-hmm. to know, they want to grasp. I mean, even yeah. eights, um, eights have this sort of tendency as well. Um, sorry, I don't want to make this all about the Enneagram, but, um, but, but there are different people, kinds of temperaments and that matters. Right. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. And I think that some people just really long to understand and they want to know whether mm-hmm. their faith is, um, based on evidence. And for those people, I think apologetics says, let's go on a journey. And so, yeah, there's going to be differences in personalities, mm-hmm. 
but there are lots of people for whom the evidence matters and the plausibility of Christianity is something that they want to think you know, carefully about. Joel, can you just break down the word apologetics for people? There's probably people that just, that just sounds like apologizing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good. So there's a passage in, I think it's 1 Peter 3.15 or 2 Peter 3.15. It's 1 Peter, yeah. Great. And Paul, uh, Peter says, be ready to give a defense for the hope within and do this in gentleness. And the Greek word for defense is apologia. And it's the same word that is used in courts of law when a lawyer or a defendant would give a case, a reasoned case on behalf of someone else. They would give an apologia. And so an apologia or an apology in this sense is not to say you're sorry. It's to give an account, a rational account of why you hold the beliefs you hold. And so apologetics is a discipline, a sub-branch of theology that examines objections to Christianity, considers evidences for Christianity, Mm-hmm. And just all around examines the plausibility of the Christian worldview in all its dimensions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Great. Thank you. Sweet. So, all right, let's dive all right. in. Yeah. So there's three questions we're going to go through. And the first one is, isn't belief in God opposed to reason and science? I just want to say from the outset that I'm, I'm not exactly a sociologist. So it's not like I went around interviewing people and getting a large sample, asking people what their main objections are. These objections are ones that I run into um, frequently Mm -hmm. as I'm doing apologetics on campus, as I'm um, interacting with students. And one of the ones that I think is perhaps the most popular concerns the rationality of belief in God. Um, People will often say, look, Christianity is nice. Religion is nice. It does good things in the world. But you have to leave your you have to kind of park your intellect at the door if you're going to be religious. Mm -hmm. The idea is that um, belief in God or Christianity requires blind faith, something like that. Alternatively, people will say, you know, belief in God is um, sort of replaced by a scientific way of thinking about the world. We perhaps needed God in the picture before we really understood how things functioned, before we had a better methodology for evaluating the world. But now we have science and science is um, the torchbearer of truth. This is a, a, a quote from Stephen Hawking, the, the really popular physicist. Science is the torchbearer of truth. But I think there is a cluster of different objections that fall under this broad umbrella. And the, the idea roughly just has to do with rationality and the idea that um, Christianity at best um, requires blind faith and at worst requires that you go against the evidence. I think you know Richard Dawkins has this really interesting quote, the, the biologist. He, he's, he says that faith is blind trust in the absence of evidence, even in the teeth of evidence. Um, so there's just this major concern that if you're going to be religious, you can't be scientifically minded and you're going to have to just make this blind leap of faith. After all, that's what Mm. faith is. It has to be blind. It has to go against the evidence. If you have evidence, you're not having faith. I think that's roughly Mm. the idea. Did did either of you want to add to that? Um, I have a question, a question if this is the same type of thing. So I think trickle down, um, I've seen this in terms of a naturalistic response or naturalistic understanding of the world. So I think many people, even Christians can struggle with the fact that God doesn't always work in terms of um, like, if I do this, this outcome happens. So Mm. like cause and effect, is that a similar thing to what you're talking about? 
Yeah, that's a really interesting way. Like of in a trickled down sort of way, like for how an average person's belief system might work. Yeah, I think there might be something to that. Um, and tell me if I'm misunderstanding your point, but I think a lot of people uh, think that if God exists, he's, he's not the sort of entity that we can we can study or evaluate in any way that would give us knowledge. I mean, think about it. God is this transcendent, um, personal, unembodied being. How could you possibly have evidence about that being's existence? I mean, it's, it's a non-physical thing. What kind of traction could you get? Whereas in science, we're studying things that are physical things. They interact mm-hmm. with the world. They have cause and effect relationships. So we might be able to create experiments that allow us to detect them. And um, if God is so different than those things, then at best, we just have to have faith that he's there. Um, yeah. 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 So I, th- yeah. I think there's three, there's three different questions here, right? And I think they do play out on different levels of society. The first is, is it philosophically the case that belief in God or faith is opposed to reason and science as a question of fact? The second mm-hmm. is a question of um, what you might call plausible bigotry. Is it just assumed in the way our culture talks to each other, mm-hmm. the people in culture, that this is the case, that faith is mm-hmm. against? And then the third is sociologically, do we just think in metaphors that are naturalistic and not related to faith? And so mm-hmm. therefore, this is what Charles Taylor called the disenchantment of our thinking, right? So that we used to think like that trees had a spirit to them and so on, right? And that a scientific worldview disenchants the way we look at the whole world. So the world is a machine to us. And we think in mechanistic and machine sort of metaphors. And so we understand things within the metaphors in which we think. So, so you've got, you've got a, like a, essentially a a social sociological political question and you've got like a, I don't know, a sociology question. I I think, uh, but I think people in college, like on campus, Mm -hmm. think of themselves as in a vocation of thinking and learning. And so I think that they primarily first want to talk about it in terms of the first thing. Is it in fact Mm -hmm. true Mm -hmm. that faith is opposed or belief in God is opposed to real good reason and actual science? Yeah. Because if that wasn't true, then we would think we'd need to cure the other two problems. Mm-hmm. And right. if it is true, then we want to reinforce the other two. So the, the prime mover foundational question is the mm-hmm. the metaphysical or the factual or the philosophical question. Is it in fact true? Yeah, that's yeah. helpful. That's good. So, yeah, and I think that one way of understanding this too is to say that people think it's like part of the, the essence of faith that it's supposed to be irrational. So, right, like, so Nick made this really mm-hmm. nice distinction between like the sociological and like the philosophical. And so people, you know, as a matter of fact, people of faith might believe without evidence. As a matter of fact, people might not, um, people of faith might not care about evidence. But the question is, could they in principle have evidence and still have faith? And I think one view is that no, you, you can't. Faith faith is supposed to be beyond the evidence. It's, um, it's opposed to having evidence. Um, when you say one view, who holds that view? Is it certain scholars and or certain types of people is, are there certain, is there a certain type of person that you're talking about? Both theists and non-theists have taken that view. I mean, yeah. Okay. Yeah. In some, in some ways, some philosophers have tried to, you know, kind of like, I think it was Hume that tried to split up the idea of fact versus value 
and that they're just two completely different ways of thinking about stuff. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you just can't apply the, the way you would think about one to the way you would think about the other. I think similarly, not it's not from Hume's view, but like in a similar kind of way, they would split up. There's there's faith axioms or ideas that are mm-hmm. like part of faith talk. And then there's like science ones that are part of science talk. And those are in two, those are in a Venn diagram that has no overlap. Right. And therefore, if you want to be in the faith circle, you just jump into the faith circle Mm -hmm. and you take the faith assumptions and you talk within the faith circle. Mm -hmm. I think probably Joel and I both disagree with that view. Yeah. There are some things that commend parts of it, but. Yeah. And it's, that's really good. And it's, it's such a, it's such a popular way of thinking. Um, And I think Mm -hmm. to add to what Nick is saying, some of some of those who hold this view, I think they're just like they're like laypersons or like scholars who are who are doing work outside of religion. So Sam Harris has this view of faith. Richard Dawkins has this view of faith. Mm-hmm. A lot of the internet atheists have this view of faith. As far as scholars go, there there are some scholars who have this view of faith. It's it's often called um, fideism, the Latin mm-hmm. it's like the Latin for faith. And the usual figurehead behind this view is Soren Kierkegaard, um, a really prominent philosopher. And mm-hmm. um, one way of interpreting Kierkegaard is to say this, that uh, what faith requires is that you have trust in the absence of evidence. It's part of the essence of faith that you go, um, you go beyond the evidence. Um, and, and more strongly, faith is meant to be counter-rational. So let's make a distinction between faith going beyond the evidence and faith going against the evidence. And the, 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 the real caricature of faith is um, the kind of fideism, which says that faith is meant to be against the evidence. But in the history of philosophy and the history of, of theology, there've been very few thinkers who have that kind of view. And probably uh, Kierkegaard didn't even have that kind of view. Yeah. As somebody um, who's read hundreds of pages of Kierkegaard, I have never detected that view in his writings. I've read it in many philosophers' depictions of him, but never actually detected it in his writings. I think the philosophers actually misunderstand Christian doctrine. And so they think that's what he means because they don't have a philosophical conception of the Christian doctrine of worldliness. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really, really good. There's this interesting quote from Kierkegaard where he says, if I wish to preserve myself in faith, I must continually be intent upon holding fast the objective uncertainty so as to remain out upon the deep over 70 fathoms of water, still preserving my faith. And what's interesting is that this isn't necessarily Kierkegaard's view. It's one of his characters. He has like a Socratic dialogue where um, a character holds this view. And the idea is that it's, it's, it's the, it's faith in the absence and even opposed to evidence that's meaningful and legitimate. That's when you know, you're really trusting in God. You wouldn't really be trusting if you had all this evidence. But, mm-hmm. but that's really not the most popular kind of fideism. Um, the, probably the most popular kind just says that faith goes beyond the evidence. It's not opposed to evidence. It's just that there's always going to be a gap. The evidence will only carry you so far, and then you have to have faith to carry you the rest of the distance. Um, so this sort of view is defended recently by a philosopher, Paul Helm. Um, so who is yeah, those are just ways of Kierkegaard who is dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting because the first kind of fideism, is that, am I saying that correctly? Yeah. 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 The first kind that you were talking about, which would be just the opposite of like the op- faith is the opposite of ev- evidence, correct? 
that sounds like some Christians I've heard talking to, like not just <laughs> secular mm-hmm. philosophers. I think you're right. Yeah. No, I've definitely yeah. ran into that as well. Yeah. One of the one of the notes that I, as as I read that I read the notes you prepared for this, Joel. One of the things that you talk a little bit about is people's misunderstanding of what counts as evidence and different sorts of evidence and how it's very easy at a school like, you know, like UW or a research university where science, science, everybody likes to say science. The more you say science, the better a person you are, you know, that it's easy to believe that the kind of information science can investigate is the only kind of information that matters or is relevant. And therefore, it's the only thing that is evidence. And therefore, anything that is not discerned through the scientific method is not evidence because it is not a fact. And that, that that's not really, that doesn't really jive in the halls of the philosophy department where evidence mm-hmm. is thought about more critically than that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think one of the, one of the biggest obstacles to believing in God um, has to do with, I think, a preoccupation with uh, um, a caricature, a naive caricature of science. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, we can definitely get into that. But I, I did want to say something more about the, the fideism thing. Um, I can understand why people think that faith is meant to kind of go beyond the evidence. You venture a little bit beyond it. You could have a lot of evidence, but there's always going to be that gap, um, that space left for faith. And I think that that's, I think that's an interesting view of faith. I'm, it's not my view of faith. I tend to think that you could have conclusive evidence that God exists, and you would still be required to have faith because faith isn't primarily or or essentially venturing beyond evidence. Faith in the biblical worldview, I think, is about trusting. It's an interpersonal thing where you're committing yourself to someone, where you're committing yourself to um, a person and the outcome, the the thing you're after Mm -hmm. is beyond your control. So it's trust for another where the outcome is beyond your control. Um, there's a really helpful illustration of this. Um, I think this comes from Greg Kokel. I, I just want to like cite my sources here, but there's a really helpful illustration that I think captures the biblical view of faith. Imagine you're on an island and you learn that a storm is coming and that this storm is going to entirely destroy the island. So you have to get off the island. Okay. You go to the harbor. There are, you can only take a boat off the harbor. There are three different boats. And look, you're going to, you're going to take one of these boats. That's just a given. And you don't, you don't want to just take a boat, um, at random, right? You want to do your homework. You want to investigate. You want to make sure the boat you're taking is reliable, that it has structural integrity, that it's going to complete its job and get you safely to shore and away from the storm. So you do your research and you find that, you know, boat one is far superior to and more reliable than boats two and three. You have outstanding evidence that boat one is the right boat to take. But until you have put your your trust in that boat and and taken a step onto that boat, you have no faith in that boat. You see, faith arises the moment you commit yourself to that boat and allow it to take you safely to shore. And so, look, you could have conclusive evidence that it's going to get you to shore. But until you actually get on it, you don't have faith in it. And so I think the essence of faith is that it trusts another or it trusts something for an outcome that is beyond one's con- one's control. Um, and yeah, some people are going to have really good evidence 
but have very little faith. Some people are going to have really good evidence, have tons of faith because they're committing themselves. And I think that's what Christianity invites us to do. It invites us to explore the evidence, but ultimately we have to take a step of trust and commit ourselves to um, relationship with God. So I don't know if that, that illustration is helpful or if you guys have any like qualms with that, but I, I've often thought that's a, a really apt way of thinking about faith. Uh, any, any reservations? No, I, I, th- I think based on that description, there is no necessary relationship to evidence in that thought experiment. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. You could have right. 100% conclusive evidence or you could have yeah. no evidence at all. Mm-hmm. You could walk up to the three boats, know nothing about them, decide on boat one, commit yourself yeah, it to it, get on. could be an impulse buy. You have no information, something. right? Yeah. And mm-hmm. I think that that's true when people actually have faith in the real world because if you choose to have faith, there's a point where you just decide you have enough information. Mm-hmm. And then you choose to put your trust in the thing. Whatever that is, whether that's getting married or whether that's choosing a degree or um, understanding and choosing to live out an ethical system for which there, there's not never 100% evidence for that, you know, that kind of thing. Um, whenever we purchase something, like you want to buy a, a, a stereo on the internet or something like that or a, a new phone, you, you can't learn everything about every phone to literally know with 100% conclusive certainty that that's the best phone for you. You do enough in research that you're happy with how much you know, and then you choose, and then you buy one. And the buying one is the step of faith. And so every person is making a subjective decision about how much information is necessary for them to put their faith in whatever decision they're choosing to make. Right? So in that sense of faith, based on that thought experiment, how much evidence or what counts as evidence is has a relative relationship rather than an absolute relationship to faith. The two aren't directly related. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. And yet, like evidence is the excuse for the questions we don't, the things we don't want to make a decision about. I mean, I've heard that I can, think, uh, can be. Mm-hmm. It can be because I think those are the moments where we're never going to feel like we have enough evidence if we're scared to trust. If that's what we're scared of, if we're scared to trust, we're never. Or if we just feel don't like, we like have something. Enough. Yeah. Right. Like mm-hmm. our, our relative threshold for how much evidence we want or what counts as evidence mm-hmm. for us will be somewhat related to our attitude. Right. About the thing. Right. Like if we see mm-hmm. if, a, if a single guy sees this beautiful girl, he, he may be persuaded that she's dateable based on her personality much faster than if he didn't find the girl pretty at all. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because he's already kind of prone to think she's good enough to date, right? Because she, right. she's pretty. Mm-hmm. And so she's, she, she says one nice thing to somebody. She's, oh, he says, she's a nice person. Look at that evidence. That's plenty of evidence for me to ask her out. Whereas if she was more homely, he might like wait for three months and see her be a saint before he's like, mm-hmm. you know what? She's a good person. I should ask her out. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, Interesting. Yeah. There's a lot. So there's a lot of moving yeah. parts here. But I also think what's really important, I'm sure Joel has opinions about this, is scientific evidence just flatly isn't the only kind of evidence. That's false. Mm-hmm. that's a profound misunderstanding about the world. If scientific evidence was the only kind of evidence, you could not believe on the basis of evidence that it was wrong to torture a baby. Mm, that's good. Because that's a moral proposition. What scientific, you could show that it's quote harmful or something, but mm-hmm. that wouldn't, then maybe you just feel, well, then maybe it's okay to, to torture other people's babies or other cultures, babies, or like even using a totalitarian or a utilitarian way of looking at it, it still wouldn't necessarily be con- conclusive. So like mm-hmm. there's also historical evidences. Like did Abraham Lincoln issue the emancipation proclamation? Well, what scientific experiment are you going to do to prove that? There isn't one, right? Historical 
claims on the basis of extant evidence, which is a totally different way of knowing things than doing an experiment and falsifying a hypothesis or attempting to falsify a hypothesis until you show that it's true. And so when people think very close-mindedly or like when people haven't been exposed to the social sciences and different ways of investigating things, they just end up with these really confused ways of thinking. And they can say things like, well, science says, and they have no idea that that statement itself doesn't make sense. There is no, there is no science. There are, there's Mm -hmm. a series of experiments by which we've made inductive um, inferences, Mm -hmm. many of which are contradictory to each other. And it slowly creates somewhat of a body of evidence where you could colloquially say, colloquially say that kind of, Um, but Mm-hmm. The science of economics and the science of physics are very different things, even though they both do experiments and do, quote, science. So it's just, I find it to be a very ignorant thing when people say stuff like that. And that's why people like Richard Dawkins tend to annoy me. Yeah, I think that's good. I think, yeah, in addition to morality, I think our knowledge of things like logic and mathematics mm-hmm. um, can't be arrived at on the basis of this sort of standard conception of science. I even think about standards of rationality. What is it to be a rational person? What sorts of methodologies do we, ought we use if we're going to think well about the world? That's not something that science leads us to. That's something, those are things that science presupposes in its investigation of the world. So I think there are lots of interesting domains of knowledge that aren't arrived at in, in the sort of empirical way that science functions. On the other hand, I think that um, a, lot of, a lot of the way science investigates the world can be used mm-hmm. by Christians uh, to think about their own worldview. Um, yeah. I, I think that they're, that science is really rich. When people talk about the scientific method, I often, I often ask, well, which method? And can you say more about the scientific method? I think we mm-hmm. have this picture of science according to which there's this one particular way that scientific inquiry and theorizing goes. And that's, that's just um, not accurate. Um, there as, are though, as though ways. nothing has happened since Francis Bacon. Right, right. There, yeah. I mean, there, there are a variety of ways of testing a theory. We can do significance testing. We can do sampling. We can do randomized control trials. Those are all, those are all really interesting ways of testing and evaluating a hypothesis. But think about how we test theories in, say, theoretical physics when we're doing cosmology, even in biology when we're thinking about uh, biological origins. Um we have to employ what's called explanatory reasoning, right? Or inference to the best explanation. We have a, a set of data. There's, a, there's some evidence that we need to explain. And then we begin to craft theories and use those theories to explain the data. And some theories are going to explain the data far better than other theories. The, the, in a simple way of viewing this is that the theory or the hypothesis that is the best explanation is the one that's um, most likely to be true. That's sort of like a rough characterization of inference to the best explanation. But this sort of theorizing is common in the sciences. I mean, if you study the history of astronomy, uh, explanatory reasoning is perhaps one of the most common ways of thinking about things. You know, you look up at, at the night sky and you see that, you know, as you track the stars across the sky, they, they appear to be moving. And the ancients took that as evidence that um, the earth was stationary and the rest of the universe was moving around us in this sort of like crystalline sphere. Why? Why did they think that? Because they thought that if there was this crystalline sphere in which the stars were embedded and it was moving around us, it would explain what we see. Um, 
And along comes Copernicus, along comes Ptolemy, and they develop these theories about the solar system. And all of it has to do with trying to explain the motions of the stars, the motions of the sun, the moon, and so on. Um, even in atomic theory. Um, here's something very interesting. We have never directly observed an atom. You cannot take an atom and say, behold, here it is. Like, I'm going to hold mm -hmm. it up right in front of you. You can't do that. Uh, we just don't have instruments that are capable of doing that. Mm -hmm. But no one thinks that because we don't have direct observational evidence of atoms, that atomic theory is somehow irrational to believe. Or relativity, no, on, similarly. Yeah, exactly. On the, on the contrary, it's, we have immensely good evidence for atomic theory. And that's because the existence of atoms, as we now understand them, provides immense explanatory understanding for a wide variety of observable, observable phenomenon. If there are mm -hmm. things like atoms, we can make sense of all sorts of things. So yeah. and I think the point there, Joel, I think is what you're making is for the lay listener, right? Is something like this. That's reasoning in the science. Yeah. So, exactly. so no right. science or body of scientific knowledge is just people putting in numbers and observing rabbits and white mice and presto, you have quote science. Yeah. Like human assumptions enter into it. Human creativity is a huge part of it. It's one of the reasons why science is such a human enterprise in a good way. Right, is that one of the why do we study cancer more than we study, you know, like viscosity and water in different lakes? You know, like it, we just we care about different things. We and then we use our creativity and then we engage in reasoning, and that's all part of science. It's one of the reasons why science can get some things really, really wrong sometimes for long periods of time, right? But it's also one of the reasons why we can correct things because we have that capacity to see stuff and then theorize. And even theorizing itself is rooted in human reasoning and creativity as well as things that we have demonstrated through um, scientific mm -hmm. experiments. So I think, mm -hmm. I think one of the things you're arguing is science is not separate from reasoning. Reasoning is the basis mm -hmm. of science. Science is rooted in human logic and understanding. We have all kinds of assumptions we bring to our scientific reasoning, which both help us and sometimes hurt us. It's one of the reasons why we have to referee and like check each other. And this is all kind of a big process. So there's no such thing as just pure science. Mm -hmm. I think that there's a fear in Christians sometimes, some Christians, to dig into science. Similar to what you were saying, Joel, about your field and the, the pushback you got mm -hmm. and the questions you got about studying philosophy and the fact that there are skeptics and many skeptics in philosophy, there's a lot of skeptics in science and in, in the sciences, not just whatever one science might be. And so I think there can be a Christian skepticism of digging into the sciences. Um, but I think it's cool to hear you talk even about the Adam example, because when we press into the sciences, I mean, God created the world. And so, there's truth to be found about God in everything, um, in any science. And so you can view it that way, or you can view it as a skeptic as well. It depends on how you're looking at it, but it doesn't oppose faith. Yeah. And it won't, it doesn't necessarily even, it, it doesn't need to lead you away from faith either when you push into those areas and ask those questions. Yeah, I think that's really good. I, I like that point. And yeah, I think too, to add to that, you know, some people think that the way, <clears throat> the way we're going to test hypotheses in science is it's, it's unique to science. It stays there. These methods, these really great methods for getting at truth, for understanding the world, 
they're contained to the sciences. And I think some of them are, but I just want to, I guess I want to suggest again that there are methods mm-hmm. in the sciences like inference to the best explanation that we can use to think about God's existence. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that um, when we do that, when we evaluate the God hypothesis, I don't mean hypothesis in the, in the sort of pejorative sense, like it's just a hypothesis. I mean, the right. claim that God exists, we can evaluate that in the same way that um, scientists are evaluating all sorts of theories. Um, we can ask ourselves, if God exists, would that explain a wide variety of phenomena in the world? Would it provide understanding? Does God have explanatory power for this or that? And so on. Mm-hmm. And that's the sort of, those are the sorts of questions we ask ourselves in the sciences. We ask ourselves, if there were atoms, if there was dark matter, and so on, would it explain mm-hmm. the phenomenon we observe? So I think that, um, you know, I'm not trying to suggest that theism, the belief that God exists, is a type of scientific hypothesis. I'm not interested in that question. I'm interested in the question, is theism true? Is it plausible to believe? And I think that we can take some of the tools that scientists use and evaluate theism on that basis. It's not the only way we can evaluate theism, because as Nick was saying, there are other ways of acquiring Mm -hmm. knowledge in the world. But I want to suggest that we can use some of the methods of science to think about theism, and that when we do, the result is really positive. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that God is the best explanation for a a wide variety of things in the world. Um, So... So yeah, I don't think that there is this split between the way we reason in science and the way we might have mm-hmm. to reason about God. And I think that ought to be encouraging to a lot of people who do work in the sciences and who are very impressed with the results of science, who are very impressed with scientific methodology. Great. I am too. And I think some of those methods can be availed in service of thinking about God's existence. Um, if you want to take a step in that direction, I highly recommend that you read Richard Swinburne, um, The Existence of God, Second Edition. He was one of the first, at least in the 20th century, to really codify this way of thinking, um, treating God like an explanatory hypothesis, and then seeing if God was a better explanation than other naturalistic explanations for things. Um, You know, this is also stuff that I think William Paley was doing way back in the 18th century, um, and then after him, Bishop Butler. um, I don't mean to insinuate that the audience of Engage and Equip is not prepared to read as Augusta a philosopher as Richard Swinburne. But is are there any like mediating apologetics books that are kind of like written for the people, normal people in the church, that if people were like, oh, I'm a little afraid to read somebody who won like a didn't he I mean he's he's won like prizes for his he's philosophy. A, yeah, he's a he's a heavy hitter, that's for sure. Yeah, and, and, and I think for like a lot of college students and people you know, maybe you want to actually like take a deep breath and like read the philosophers themselves because there's a reason why these guys are mm-hmm. the classics. But I also think that there are some people that have tried to mediate this for the church. That may not be your bailiwick because you're actually reading these guys because you're doing the PhD work. But do you know of like apologetics books that like have mediated Swinburne stuff for the church, like something Bill Craig has written or somebody like that? Yeah. That's, that's still a, difficult for most church people, but it is doable. I think that's such a good question. Thanks for bringing that to my attention. So Swinburne has a condensed popular version of his larger work. Uh, I believe it's called, Is There a God or Does God Exist? Um, it's a smaller version. Okay. But I, I would say there's a really nice essay written by a really remarkable philosopher, Paul Copan. Um, I know Paul personally. Oh, great. 
Yeah. yeah he and I, he and I, he, he inspired Alexa and I to have children. Oh, that's hilarious. Wow. Yeah, he's like, his wife, Jackie, like so when we got married. Okay. Let me digress into a story for just like 30 seconds. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because Paul is a very clear and very simple writer. He is a good person for this. This he is a very is. good. It's okay. so true. But, um, but yeah, no, I went to RZIM, Ravi Zacharias International Mysteries mm-hmm. as part of Lexi's and my first honeymoon right after we got married. And we actually stayed with Paul and Jackie Copan. No wow. kidding. And they had five, they had five children and their kids were all pretty young at this point. This was 20 years ago. And like we hung out with them and we're like, cause we were kind of afraid to have children in this world to mm-hmm. raise them up to know and love Jesus. And they had wonderful kids and Paul was, is a great father. And it was really, really cool to just be with their family. And I was like, mm-hmm. I, I, when we left that weekend, I was like, I can have children in this world. The Lord mm-hmm. can help us. This can be done. Mm-hmm. And um, his, so cool. his kids have, I have grown up to be like great adults too. The ones that are grown now, but yeah. yeah anyway. So yeah, Paul and Paul writes like he, his, like his calling kind of is to like, not dumb it down, but like to write it mm. as clear as he can so that people can just like get their head around mm. the ideas without being unnecessarily yeah. befuddled. He's yeah. He is so gifted in that he, he can take very d- complicated ideas and then package them in a way that's super accessible. I, I love reading his stuff for that reason. Jill, we need to have him on this podcast. We okay. need to get Paul Copan on this podcast. Yeah. What's I would, the lo- name I would of love his to be there. We should have a conversation with him about <laughs> animal ethics. Oh, that's, wow. that's okay. one area where I, uh, if I can get him on this podcast, do you think that's what we should talk to him about? Okay, we'll talk about this later. <laughs> yes, but he just, he just like published. I might, anything I might I've ever thought about train but... with this because he just published this um, anthology of essays on animal ethics. And I was excited to read it. And then I started reading it and thought, no, this is like going in the completely wrong direction. But So I love Paul Copan. I love a lot of his work. I think his work on animal ethics is, oh, it's it's unfortunate. But it's, he edits a lot of stuff. So I'm yeah. assuming this is a bunch of edit, Yeah. Yeah, wow. but he's remarkable. I have so many questions, but for another time, probably. He wrote a bunch um, of books but, on rel- on relativism too. Some of his yeah. like like early stuff where he was just like, "Can it be true for me or not for you?" That's mm-hmm. right. That kind of stuff. He wrote a couple but, of books which which I got early on. But sorry, sorry. Yeah. yeah go ahead. So the one there's just one there's just a, a chapter of his book. He has a book on the philosophy of religion. It's called Loving okay. Wisdom, and there's a chapter of that available for free online. Just type in Paul Copan, God, the best explanation. God, the best explanation. Yep. And okay. it's a, it's a marvelous little overview of how this explanatory argument goes. Yeah. You know we'll what we should do? Jill, we should have Joel read that for an episode of Engage and Equip. I can have just like the, the, I mean, I'll, people maybe can I can Google do it. it though. Well, yeah, we should do this. <laughs> That'd be a great episode. Just somebody reading that out loud. That sounds like those kinds of things when people ask you questions and then they're like, just Google it. Actually, there's a, like an acronym. I don't remember what it's called. Yeah, anyway. Okay, that's great. Okay, listen, we're going to run out of time if we don't move on to yep. other questions. So, so the second... Let's, yeah, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to do what you were going to do, but let's move on to two, which is, wasn't the Bible just made up? Yeah. That's a, I've heard that one quite a bit. I yeah. was a religious studies... Um, I, well, I studied religious studies at UW-Madison. Mm. And so that was basically all we talked about in those classes. <laughs> yeah. It's called the Bible just made up. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't explicitly said, but that's, yeah, it sounded like some of the, what we that's talked about. so interesting. I mean, do you, I'd, I'd be curious to just hear your thoughts. I mean, how do you respond to a question like this? Hmm. We should probably frame the question for listeners. Yeah. So I'll do that. Yeah, then you yeah. guys can respond. Okay. So the idea that the idea is, is that um, people think that Christian believers believe that the Bible sort of fell from heaven, verbally perfect and translated into English already. And if the King James Bible is good enough for Paul, it's good enough for us. And 
that's that's of course false right mm-hmm. um and so they think that well probably it was just made up by, by all these people who are trying to make up a jesus religion and so they just wrote whatever they thought people would believe to support their jesus religion and since it was since the biblical books were written after the first um the first several years of the church there was something they were writing to and when people write to something they write interested documents Mm-hmm. And so their intentions, their bigotries, their desires, the people they hated is all just fills the pages of that book. And to say that it is inspired by God and therefore the word of God written is just a crazy way to look at an ancient document like the Bible, which is a library of of documents mm-hmm. written by people who are advocating for the Jesus religion and really just one sect of the Jesus religion, they would usually say. How's yeah. that for a framing? That's really good. And I, I would add too, I mean, there are some people who are really skeptical, say, just take the gospels. They're really skeptical of the gospels because the gospels have miraculous content. Jesus mm-hmm. heals people. He turns water into wine. He's resurrected. And I think a lot of people understandably think that miracles are rather incredible, or at least they're, they're initially suspicious. You're telling me a miracle happened? Like, come on, that can't be historical. Um, so there's one mm. grounds for concern. There's another interesting grounds for concern. It's like, there's the miraculous stuff, but there's also, you know, what's called high Christology. So Jesus making these really extravagant claims about himself, saying the gospel mm-hmm. of John before Abraham was, I am, um, or Jesus claiming to forgive sins, um, which is an implicit reference to his divinity. And so a lot of historical Jesus scholars have thought that these narratives about Jesus claiming to be divine, they, they couldn't have originated in the first century Jewish world. These like no first century Jew would have said these things about themselves. No first century Jews would have thought this about another human being. These are committed monotheistic Jews. Mm -hmm. And so one of the early schools of historical Jesus scholarship thought that the gospels must have been created much later after Jesus's death and in a completely different place on foreign pagan soil. Pagan soil Mm -hmm. was the right place, right conditions for the creation of these um, texts about Jesus being divine. The pagans would easily believe that about someone, but not the Jews. And so, you know, there's that concern in scholarship that the, the gospels have really, they really took off in pagan soil decades removed from the original sources, from the original events. Um, and then, yeah. And so what's interesting, I mean, just to get into it a little bit is there's actually really good evidence that, um, the earliest narratives we have about Jesus already have the highest Christology. They already make the highest and boldest claims about him being divine. Um, so, you know, A.T. Robinson from Cambridge has one of these arguments where he, he tries, he argues that the gospel of Mark, which is thought to be one of the earliest gospels we have, was written within 15 to 20 years mm-hmm. of the actual life events of Jesus. It wasn't written late in the next century no, it was written soon after the events. And there are really interesting reasons for thinking that. I mean, in the gospel, um, you, you find things like, like this. Um, instead of saying, instead of calling the Jewish people the Jews, it would call, it refer to them as the people, which was a very common way mm-hmm. of speaking about Jews before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, but not so common afterward. Um, and there's just like a list of different things like this, little things that add up and suggest, man, the gospel of Mark must have been written early, say before 70 AD. He thinks A.T. Robinson thinks it was around 45 CE. 
Mm -hmm. And if so, then we already have high Christology or, you know, in, at, the, at the very outset of Christianity. Um, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is like forgiving people's sins and thereby you know, making a reference to his divinity. Mm. But the first even, verse calls him the son of God. That's exactly right. <laughs> I mean, one that, one that really impresses me comes from Philippians 2. I think this is one of the most impressive ones. And to be clear, some scholars debate it, but there seems to be a, a majority view that in Philippians 2, if you go to Philippians 2, 4 through 11, maybe it's, I don't know if it's exactly four through 11, but, uh, you know, starting, starting at seven and going on, there's this nice little passage that talks about Jesus, how he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of man and so on. But then it goes on to say that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. What's so interesting about this text is that if you translate, if you look at it in Greek, it's very awkward Greek. But if you put it into Aramaic, it flows quite nicely. Moreover, there are things that you won't see in English that if you look at it in the original language, um, indicate that it was probably a, a kind of hymn because it has a certain kind of cadence to it mm. that we won't detect in English. And so a lot of scholars like Richard Bauckham think that this is a hymn that the earliest Christians used in their worship services, probably dating within three to five years of Jesus's alleged resurrection. And what are they saying about Jesus three to five years after his alleged resurrection? They're saying that every knee will bow and confess that he is Lord. Lord doesn't just mean master or king in this context. This is a reference to Isaiah where it's talking about Yahweh. At the name of Yahweh, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And so this text, early, early, early text is saying that Jesus is Yahweh. This isn't something that happened in pagan soil decades later. No, this was happening from the very get-go. And so this has actually turned scholarship in a different direction. The, the current debate is not, did the, did the Gospels develop decades later on pagan soil? The current debate is, how could high Christology develop early on in Jewish soil? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, people like Bart Ehrman are now writing, trying to say, well, first century Judaism was already so thoroughly impacted by Greek thought and pagan thought that it's, you know, not surprising at all that early Jews would have thought of a human as divine. And there are interesting responses to, um, to Ehrman. So anyway, those are just some of the interesting directions the debate is going. Yeah. What, what do you guys think? Yeah. I, part of it is, is that the quote, so these, sometimes these are called like the historical quests for Jesus. Right. Right. Um, the, some of the language goes back to, to people like Bultmann, where they talk about the, the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. And those are, those are different things. There's like this mm -hmm. idea of the Christ and there's the, like a guy who lived in history named Jesus. And what we want to find out is what the guy in history who's named Jesus was really like. And it's right. nothing like this later development, which is like the Christ of faith. And, but the problem is, is that that kind of talk has been going on for a while because critical scholarship dates back to the 1700s, at least if not the 1600s, depending on who you're, who, who you count starting. Hmm. And so, some of the stuff has just flatly been falsified. So for example, early um, theologically liberal scholarship that argued that the gospels were the product of later Christian communities dated the gospel of John, for example, to 220 AD, about the same time the Gnostic gospels were being written. And they just believed it, just, it would just take that long to develop. Well, the problem is later than that, a shard, a, a little piece of the gospel of John was found that was dated to 120 AD. Mm -hmm. So we, there, there've been these events where it's just, there's been like, clear and part of it is just the attitude one of the things that joel i'm sure is very familiar with is just the attitude and the arrogance and the 
kind of the career making within all forms of scholarship, not least mm-hmm. in religious and philosophical circles and how great, you know, your theory is. And just people just won't let it go. But like the gospel of John existed in 120. So what that means is, is that it was already complete and in Alexandria by 120. Mm-hmm. And so it, it just, so some of these prognostications of Jesus disbelieving scholars that have been put out there to give explanatory power have also been done in a way that are actually falsifiable sometimes by physical evidence like pieces of the gospel of John and sometimes by um, further analyzing linguistic and rhetorical Mm -hmm. evidence like Joel was talking about those kinds of evidences you know Mm -hmm. yeah I when I studied this in college I studied mostly the Old Testament and particularly mm-hmm. the prophets. And um, so from the student perspective, who and I, I was a Christian at the time, it did seem to me that scholarship, if so I did, I want to say that I did have some professors who were Christians, and that was very helpful. Um, but it did seem like scholarship was also a, a mask for skepticism. And there were some instances where I felt like the text was so people were trying so hard to over explain what might've been happening yeah. that a clear reading of the text was mi- missed. Yes. Does that make sense? Oh my so, gosh. Yes. Um, yeah, but it's I felt time. like reading it, like not studying this for decades, I felt like this meaning is pretty clear. It seems. Um, but I also know like they've put more time into it. So I don't want to mm-hmm. completely discount scholarship. That's not what I'm trying to do. It did seem in some cases obvious that they didn't want to believe maybe what it was saying. Mm-hmm. So I'd be interested what, to hear what you have to say yeah, about that. I, I think you're absolutely right. I think that not all scholars in, in these fields are doing this, but a number right. of them are, I think just doing like real violence to the plain reading of the text and to like trying to, trying to turn history into something that any, any, any clear headed person will say that that's not what's going on here. So one scholar who does this in the in, with the Gospels is a really prominent um, scholar, John Dominic Crossan. He's one of those scholars that you know does what Nick was saying. He wants to divorce the historical Jesus from the Jesus of faith. He really cares about the Jesus of faith, but he thinks the Jesus of faith doesn't look anything like the historical Jesus. Right? Mm-hmm. We have layers of layers of legend and so on. And if you read some of his stuff, um, like his his book, Jesus: A Revolutionary Biography. It's really, it's really entertaining how he'll try to make sense of how some of these gospel narratives uh, developed. Here's an example. In one of the resurrection narratives, I believe it's in John, the, the disciples hear from the women that the tomb was empty. And Peter and John take off, running towards the tomb. And it says in the text that John outran Peter and arrived first, but he stopped at the tomb and didn't go in. Peter went into the tomb. Okay. So what's this narrative all, all about? Well, one interpretation is this is just historical documentation, like all these incidental details. It's exactly what we expect if someone's just re- recounting and remembering the way it happened. Here's John Dominic Crossan's take on this. Why do we have this narrative? Well, because the Joannine community, that is the community of believers, disciples, who were primarily followers of John, wanted to emphasize John's importance in the church. So they create a narrative where John 
beats Peter in a foot race to the tomb. And this is somehow going to convey to early Christians, oh, John's a very important person. John's spiritually important. He's spiritually important. Because he's fast. But they also know, (laughs) they know the tradition. They know that Peter's the head of the church. So they don't go all the way. They allow that Peter's the one who goes in. So ultimately Peter's in charge, but don't forget, John is really important too, because he Mm. beat Peter in that foot race. So all these texts are polemics. Hmm. Are polemics and between early Christians, um, it's just it's just mind-boggling how he, um, yeah, does this to the text. Um, I think it's really poor methodology, and there are lots of yeah. lots of non non-believing scholars who I think disavow that methodology, and for good reason. There's this really great humorous essay by N.T. Wright that he gave at one of the scholarly conventions about like the cross and shenanigans and all that. I mean, yeah. he's written like a thousand scholarly pages on this and just carves up um, the, the third quest, like cross in and um, yeah. I forget Borg. the other guys. Yeah. Borg, I think. Yeah. Marcus Borg. Yeah. Um, so Jesus and the victory of God, for example, but it's an older book now because this is all, you know, the, there's these things just come in waves. And I think that's mm-hmm. one of the things I've noticed about the questions we're talking about today is these are all questions when I was in college, all of them, mm-hmm. same questions. And it's framed a little differently. A little bit differently, but even as we get to the, we need to get on to the third one here. But yeah. even as we get on to the all the other questions, they were all there. They're framed a little differently. Mm-hmm. The emphasis switches a little bit, but it's still these big questions of: Can the scriptures be believed? Is the gospel a credible statement? What about rationality and science that has changed our lives so much? Yeah. Right. Usually, there is some kind of implicit political question related to justice. And the main way those questions about justice have been attacking Christian faith are in one of the areas where Christians make the strongest public claims about ethics, which is in relationship to family formation, procreation, and fertility, which is our claims, our sexual ethics. Yeah. Um, which is the third question that Joel mm-hmm. brought up. Joel, did you Joel, want to say something? Did you want to say something last about that? Yeah. Did you? I wanna... did, but it just it was that was such a great segue. It was a great segue, Dick. wasn't I feel it? Like yeah. I, I shouldn't ruin it, but I I'm gonna just <laughs> want to wrap that second point up. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just think, look, when people approach me and they're like, look, I, I don't know why we should believe in the Bible. Um, you know, how do we know that this is that this stuff happened? Well, the first thing I want to do is I want to take them right to the Gospels because the Gospels uh, are at the heart of Christianity. Why? Because Jesus is at the heart of Christianity. Everything um, stands or falls with Jesus in my view, right? So whatever else you think about the rest of the, the scripture, we at least need to start with the Gospels and get right on Jesus. And then people are like, fair enough. How do I know that the gospels are reliable? Like there's just no way of knowing. And I think that that just reveals a kind of intense skepticism about history. And I think just as we can evaluate belief in God by using explanatory tools that scientists are using, I think we can evaluate the gospel text using tools that historians are using. Look, scripture is inspired revelation for sure. That's an important theological claim, a, a commitment of Christianity. But we can also treat scripture like a historical document, and it is a historical document, and evaluate it using these tools that historians use. And I think if you go on that journey, you're going to find that the Gospels consistently come out with a positive result on a variety of different tests that historians are using. To give just one recommendation to um, to listeners, there's a marvelous book by Greg Boyd and Paul Eddy. Greg Boyd is one of my favorite theologians. Um, Paul Eddy is great as well. And they have this, there's there's two versions. There's their academic version. It's called um, the Jesus legend. And they survey a variety of different objections to the reliability of the gospels and then present a positive case. This book is marvelous. 
precisely because it discusses all the most important objections to the credibility of the Gospels. Um, there, the more popular version of that book is called, is called Lord or Legend. It's much shorter, much more condensed. And I cannot recommend that book enough. Years ago, when my faith was hanging by a thread, um, everything came back to Jesus. And I was like, look, I believe in God. I think there's really good uh, philosophical and empirical evidence for thinking God exists. But what about Jesus? And I wanted, mm-hmm. I wanted Christianity to be true. I wanted the Gospels to be reliable. And it wasn't until I read that book that I thought, oh my gosh, I think Christianity not only has a sort of existential or emotional leg to stand on, but it has an intellectual leg to stand on because the gospels are substantially reliable history. Mm-hmm. So I highly recommend yeah. reading one of those books. Yeah, that's great. I, I, make, I need to make a few comments about that just as the pastor guy. Um, Greg Boyd believes, or at least has believed, a doctrine called open theism, which is the belief that God doesn't actually know the future for complex philosophical reasons we won't go into here nor whether or not that's heresy. You can believe that a scholar makes a really good contribution in one area of faith and be profoundly and substantially wrong in another. And so Boyd is actually a really, really smart guy and he's a really good writer. And so I, I do want to commend to you with Joel, his work on Jesus. Um, I also want to commend to you not to then go read his stuff on open theism. Um, I just think that that's just not a good use of your time. And I think it's a really bad way to understand how God interacts with the future. And so uh, I just, you know, listen, you're wrong about some stuff and right about some stuff. So are scholars and people can make great contributions in areas where, um, and also I think part of too, even Boyd's book, God at war, I, many people who don't believe in open theism have said it's one of the best v- books on spiritual warfare and how God interacts with the world in certain kinds of ways they've ever read, even though they don't believe in that other theory. So I think, so yeah, so and some of you might hear the name Greg Boyd and know that he believes in open theism, but I'm not reading a book by him, but listen, it, it's, he still may have written a really good other book. And um, so I just think that's important. I think secondly, it's important to recognize you got to read the, I think you should read the gospels before you have an attitude about them hmm. because they'll win you over. Mm-hmm. They are clearly not what scholars say they are when scholars talk about them this way. If you just read the document itself, you have to engage in, in, in quite a bit of personal skepticism that you read into the text because they are written as very earnest documents. Mm-hmm. And then th- thirdly, I think it's really important to recognize um, that it's very easy to sit in an office and type and it's harder to get burned alive. And it's, it, I just think it's, a, I think it's bad form to engage in interpreting texts of people who did far braver things than you, hmm. especially by using a means of interpretation that you would never want anyone to use on your writings. Mm-hmm. Like I would never want someone to interpret any of my writings the way mm-hmm. these scholars interpret the gospels ever. And I similarly don't therefore think I should interpret anybody else's. I don't think I should interpret these scholars' writings the way they <laughs> interpret. I mean, if I said about scholars that attack the Gospels, you know, you can't believe anything these guys say. They don't even believe any of the things that they write because they're part of a ideological community within their field that will say anything to get the stuff that they believe to become popular. And so they're just trying to do these things. It's really an act of power rather than a profession of the truth. And we, you really shouldn't listen to them. They're really just playing their language game for their political ends. Those scholars would be mortified and would argue vociferously against me that that was what their writing was like. And yet they take up their hat and umbrella and walk over to their office and type meaningful essays and books about how the gospel writers must have done that. 
And I, I just think it's a, it's an act of, of hypocrisy. And I, I think it's a dishonest. Hmm. I, th- I think for a lot of these reasons, not all of them, but for a lot of these reasons, especially the most popular ones like Crossan and Borg and definitely Airmen and folks like that. Um, I think it is based on how they do it. Hmm. So anyway, segueing to yeah. other questions. All right. So other questions relate to um, uh, justice and, and mm. ethics as they're perceived by the person believing and the feeling that Christianity is immoral. That I don't want to believe in Christianity because Christianity is immoral. That is one thing that has changed somewhat in the last 70 years. There was a time, at least in the United States, at least among white people, where it was generally believed that Christianity was, a, was generally a good moral framework that was good for society and good for people. And um, people were like, yeah, Christian ethics are good. And that really has changed within the secular atmosphere of the university, especially within the chairs of professorships, but also within the student body, the idea, can you be a good person if you're a Christian? Is that even possible? Is a very real notion in their minds. And one of, in one of the foundational places where that catches hold is in the question of sexual ethics, specifically mm-hmm. as it relates to um, LGBT orientations and the lifestyles attached mm-hmm. to them and the moral standing of those choices. Is it a question of... Um, are Christians moral or is Christianity moral or is it just a question of is there morality in this area or does that is no because they they all believe rape is wrong so they believe that there is there is morality in the realm of sexuality and they They would use the term morality I think so I think they would say it's wrong to rape somebody Mm -hmm. and they don't mean I don't like it yeah they mean they're to that's the funny thing about ethics is people, when you haven't taken a class in ethics, you're, you're not troubled by the fact that no, you don't have any idea what you mean when you say that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that what you think you mean, right? To say that's wrong, what does that mean? Does it mean you don't like it? Does it mean it's mm-hmm. bad for certain population curve outcomes? Or, good? or do you believe yeah. it's inherently wrong? Mm-hmm. What do you even mean by inherently, right? Like what mm-hmm. moral theory you're ascribing to, of course, is a big question. I'm sure Joel can go out and wax eloquent about this for hours. But the point is, is that that's what they believe, though. In terms of faith, like we discussed before, secular people have faith too. And mm-hmm. they have faith, that is, they believe and act as though, right, the, the thing is. And that is, for example, rape is wrong, right? The question is, is, is sexual ethics teleological? That is, are you, do you have to live out a particular nature, right? Or is it? is a definitional. Can you decide what your sexuality means and use it the way you think is best? Or according to like, let's say utilitarian standards, like as long as you're causing pleasure and not pain on the whole or something like that. So mm-hmm. um, to clarify one more, anyway, we should point. probably get to do what Joel thinks about this and then you can ask the lay question. But, but this issue of like, yeah. can Christian, are Christians inherently bad people because they believe in a sexual ethic okay. that must entail oppressive views of sexuality, especially for LGBT people and women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's an interesting way of framing it. <clears throat> I think um, there's another distinction, and it, it goes back to something Jill was saying. I think it was a really good way of framing that, the, the difference. On the one hand, there's this question, are Christians morally suspect mm-hmm. when it comes to their views of gender and sexuality and the way they interact with each other? Um, and on the other hand, is, script, is Christian teaching like Christian scripture promoting teachings that are oppressive and harmful. Mm -hmm. And in principle, you know, scripture could teach something that's not oppressive and yet its adherents go on to do really oppressive things. Um, But I think that, you know, the most interesting question is, um, 
does Christian scripture teach oppressive things when it comes to sexuality and gender and romance? Um, so mm-hmm. I like that way of just, of, you know, carving things up and, mm-hmm. and look, I, I just want to say like, it's a really tricky issue. Um, it's really difficult, um, precisely because like sexuality is so important to us and it, it means so much to mm-hmm. us and, and rightly so it's a very important thing. And Christianity says that it's important. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess I just want to say, I just, I just want to say this, you know, sometimes there are, there are, you know, these teachings in scripture that say they're teachings about what's permissible as far as sex goes or as far as romance goes. And it's easy for people to look at these teachings and think that seems really counterintuitive. It seems like that's actually not, that's not a bad thing. Like it's okay to do that. Or, you know, if, if Christianity says this is okay, then some people will say, no, that's not okay. Um, and I just want to sympathize with those intuitions. Like, I think just to be real, like it's easy to sometimes look at certain teachings and think, is this really like good? Um, but I just want to say this as a second point, we shouldn't expect, we shouldn't always expect that if a wise and loving God exists, that his revelation will always square with our intuitions about morality and about mm-hmm. relationships, about sexuality. I mean, honestly, I would find it very surprising if it did, if God showed up and said, here's some revelation about uh, the ethics of sexuality and romance. And when I look into it, I find that it's exactly what I already believe. I would probably think, nope, this isn't actual revelation. This is something that's made in my own image or in the image of my culture. So I think we should expect antecedently that if God's going to give us revelation about sexuality and about morality, that it's often going to push up against our preconceived notions and our intuitions. Um, And then just a last point here, like even if we don't always understand God's revelation on some of these matters, and even if some of these things seem counterintuitive, we need to ask ourselves, do we have good reason to think that this is actually revelation from a wise and loving God? Because if the answer is yes, then we have reason to accept it as true. And not just reason to accept it as true, but reason to believe that it's actually good, our intuitions notwithstanding. And so, I mean, this, you know, this happens in science as well. Sometimes a scientific theory will tell us things about the world that's really perplexing. You know, light behaves like a wave and light behaves like a particle. Um, there's also there are all sorts of things in science that are a bit perplexing, and yet there's really good evidence to think that those theories are true. And so, you know, when we're thinking about Christianity, we shouldn't just consult our intuitions. We never just look at one thing that's causing confusion or that seems problematic. Mm-hmm. We have to consult the entire body of evidence available to us and ask ourselves, on balance, does the evidence support Christianity being true, even if there are certain areas where it seems like there's a problem? And um, yeah, I mean, what what do you do? You guys want to add anything to that? Yeah, I mean, I think at some point you have you have to actually broach the Christian vision for sexuality. But I I think I think that you're right. Too. Like we talked about at the beginning, pre evangelism and dealing with plausibility structures and so on. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. If you don't even deal with the idea that, look, God may disagree with you mm-hmm. about something really important. Or God may have the right to define something he created, even if that thing he created is part of your body. Mm-hmm. And it's different than how you want to use it or define it. Mm-hmm. Those basic conceptualizations are are foundational. And if you if you just assume the only person who has any relationship to me is me first, I'm the primary entity related to myself, and therefore I'm the primary definer of myself, then if somebody comes along and says, you can't define yourself that way, the and that's by definition oppression, 
right? Because he's it's contradictory and more foundational authority about self-definition. The, the, but the idea that God as creator and as author and as the providential one is more foundational than you in defining yourself. I mean, that is, that's a, like a 180 degree different way of looking at the universe. Mm-hmm. Whether or not yeah. God exists and is more foundational than you in defining yourself. And, mm-hmm. and, and two, that he's good. You know, I think we forget that there's lots of evidence suggesting that God cares about us immensely. He's a God that looks like Jesus dying on a cross for sinners. Like mm-hmm. Yahweh is a self-sacrificial, other-oriented, foot-washing, people-loving God. And if that's true about him, then even the things I don't fully understand or that seem harmful or that cause some pain, some sacrifice, those are the things that in the end are going to be for my own good. And mm-hmm. I don't have to believe that gritting my teeth because when I look at Jesus, I say, there's someone worth loving because they love me. Um, mm-hmm. And if God is like that, then I can... I can surrender these things or, or, you know, follow, be faithful mm-hmm. to Christian revelation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to, similar to what you said, Nick, about the gospels to actually just read them, <laughs> to read the gospels. I think it's important to recognize the assumptions we bring onto the texts about sexuality and gender in the Bible. Bef- fr- we, we bring these assumptions to the table that a that we have from other places besides the Bible. And that I think sometimes people re- with these assumptions or maybe even intuitions may have not even read the Bible and what it says. And th- it's true that some of the texts are very difficult and confusing. Mm-hmm. Um, however, to interact with the text itself and not just what you think it says, those are two different things. And it's important that we know what assumptions we're bringing and putting on the text and we know what we're actually interacting with. Yeah. I, I just think that's like such an interesting and good observation. And I think it even speaks to Christians. You know, there's a, mm-hmm. a recommendation for those of us who have grown up in the church to um, not come to the text with our preconceived notions of things, but let the text speak to us. And I think one thing we can do to reveal to the world that um, I wonder if this is the right way of framing that. One thing we can do to counteract, I think, this this assumption that Christianity has oppressive views of gender is to ask ourselves, are we bringing fallen views of gender to the text Mm -hmm. and then Mm -hmm. thinking, oh, the text is actually teaching this. So if you're a complementarian, you think that there are gender roles that are theologically ordained, you have to be so careful because it'd be very easy to come with a cultural view of gender roles and think, oh, this is the theological view of gender roles. Mm -hmm. And so... Mm -hmm. Part of this just requires us being super cautious as Christians and not Mm -hmm. uh, reading into the text a view of gender that isn't there. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, No, I think that's, I think it's very true. I think that, I think that we can read tradition um, Mm -hmm. into the text. I think we can also read um, bad science into the text. Like Mm -hmm. one of the things that drives me nuts is when people are like, you know, Chris, the Bible teaches that the sun rotates around the earth and like, that's just, it's in the Bible and the Bible's, I'm like, they got that for Ptolemy. Like that's, that was a non-Christian science, like scientific view that was the majority view at the time. And so Christians try to synthesize that with Bible and tended to think that, but it's not in the Bible. They didn't even get it from the Bible. They got it from the secular science of the time. Mm-hmm. And similarly, I think that there's, there are quote secular scientific views about sexuality right now that we also could read into the Bible. And many Christians do, mm-hmm. which could be equally as bad as reading tradition, traditionalists mm-hmm. understandings into the Bible. Sure. Yeah, no, I, I totally believe, I totally agree that like us being confronted by our own Bible is 
got to happen before anybody else is going to be confronted by our Bible. Right. You know, I think practically yeah. speaking. Yeah. And I would just add to that. I think that's really good. I would just add to that as well that I, th- I think it's important to discuss the nuances of Christian theology with those mm-hmm. who have concerns about um, Christianity's teachings on these matters. Here's what I mean. Um, suppose that you are interacting with a Christian, you're, you're, you're a skeptic, um, or maybe you're a Christian who's just, you know, who, who grew up in a tradition where you were taught that the pulpit is exclusively for men or something like that. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, here, here's what's true about that. You might, you might, you might initially think that that's, that seems wrong. That seems unpalatable. Here's what's true about it is that a biblical case can be made for that view. On the other hand, it's important to note that a biblical case can be made in the opposite direction as well. And I think this is information that we owe ourselves, that we owe those in our churches. This is information we owe our skeptic friends as we help them along their journey thinking through faith. And I I think an example to help illustrate the point I'm trying to make is think about debates about Genesis 1, about the creation of the cosmos. You know, there are those who have a certain interpretation according to which the days refer to literal 24-hour days. And so it's easy to come away from the text, understandably, uh, thinking that the, the universe was created in six literal days. On the other hand, there are those who think, no, that's not what the text is saying. There's really good exegetical reasons to think that it's saying something else. And I think that just knowing that there's a debate about it, just knowing that there are scholars on either side of the creation debate, or the Genesis one debate is very important. I'll never forget this, this conversation I had with a friend I was discipling years ago. <clears throat> he was really jazzed about Christianity, really loving it. Calls me one day and he's like, Hey, I'm really struggling. I just read Genesis one. And do you know what it says? And he asked me as if I, I like never read Genesis one. And he's like, it teaches that the, that the earth was created in six literal days. And I cannot get myself to believe that. That seems completely at odds with what science is teaching. And all I did was say, I didn't even re- reveal my own cards. I didn't need to say, oh, like, let me show you my view on it. And I'll just show you that you can, you can get around that. No, all I said was, look, you just need to know that there are scholars who think that that interpretation isn't right. There are scholars who think it is. But let me give you the argument from those scholars saying that the creation narrative isn't teaching a 24-hour view. And just introducing him to the debate alleviated some of his concern. And I think we can do a similar thing when it comes to certain questions about sexuality. The point is to help people see that Christianity doesn't necessarily stand or fall with a particular view of Genesis 1. Likewise, it doesn't stand or fall with a particular view of gender roles in the church or something like that. This is an important issue, of course, like gender is an important issue, but the central issue is Christ crucified. It's the gospels. And it's important for people to know that there are nuances. There is debate. We can open them up to that to that debate. And I think that's an honest thing to do to help them along in their journey. Even if we think that they might end up going in a direction that is mistaken, they have that, they have that sort of responsibility to evaluate the theological evidence for themselves. So for what it's worth, I think it's important for people to know the, the sort of nuances within theology about some of these issues. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? It does. It does. I have about 60 minutes of stuff to say about that yeah, pastorally, totally, totally. but um, I do think that off telling people when they hear, when people hear something and they immediately struggle with it and that feels like something stopping up their wheels, moving towards Jesus and saying, look, you don't have to sort this out right this minute, but mm-hmm. 
you need to realize that there, there is some debate about this. There are some Christians who hold this other view. Um, mm-hmm. There are ethical questions related to whether or not you should do that if you believe the other view is false. Like if you're talking to somebody about Jesus and you get to the doctrine of hell and they are just scandalized by it, the idea. And you say, say, well, there are a number of Christians who believe a view, a view called annihilationism, which is the view that God will punish people proportionately to what they deserve and then they will cease to exist. So there is, there is an eternal conscious torment. There is appropriate conscious torment. And then the person ceases to exist and doesn't ex- experience eternal life. Right. There are a number of people who are like, Oh, well, I guess if God did that right, that would be just at least kind of, I that's less right now. But what if I don't believe annihilation, annihil, annihilism is annihilationism is true. Is it ethical for me in the evangelism process to offer somebody a thought experiment doctrine that I say might be right. Some people believe this, that I think is false. I don't think the argument for it is good. I think it's a poor argument that shouldn't be persuasive. Is it right? So that like, I have a lot to say about that in terms of the ethics yeah, of it, how it functions, good. when do we do it? All that kind of thing. Yeah. Right? And I just follow but, up. But I think the idea, what you're saying is, yeah, but I mean, you still can say to people, um, there, there are a lot of different thoughts on this. Don't, don't get too narrow right off the bat. The problem though, Joel is, is that for the general Bible believing Christian who thinks the Bible is the word of God written and inspired by God, there's not a lot of things you get to say helpfully in the sexual debate. There's a lot mm-hmm. of things that should be helpful that you can say, but if what you want to say is mostly what you already think you can still believe if you come to the Jesus of the scriptures, I don't think is true. Does that make sense? You could say that there are LGBT affirming people who self-identify as Christians and who Mm -hmm. say that they believe in the Bible is the word of God written because that is true. Mm -hmm. But I also think that that's very problematic because I don't think you can actually square the written Bible with many of the views of LGBT affirming ideologies. Very, I think you can be very affirming to LGBT Mm -hmm. people Mm -hmm. and some of the things they believe. And I think that you can talk really differently than traditional Christians and believe and act very different than traditional Christians. But I don't think you can actually ever get around the Christian sexual ethic. And at even lower, I don't which know, is very straightforward and, and not put forward as uh, negotiable in the Bible. In the Bible, it's like if you don't follow the sexual ethic, you're not a Christian. I mean, before I that, even before that, even people would. I mean, I'm assuming that people now many people would find it oppressive that you can't have sex outside of marriage. Like that's oppressive <laughs> oh, right. to some people. Right. Right. I, I need, I need to go back to the thing I just said, cause I just yeah. said something that could be heard in a way that would be not okay. true. Okay. When I say, if you don't follow the Christian sexual ethic, you're not a Christian. What I mean is that not that if you fail or you can't do it or for reasons of infirmity, you're not able to, what I'm saying is, mm-hmm. is that the Bible does not speak of sexual ethics. Like there's this thing over here, the gospel about Jesus. Now for people who believe in that God wants you to behave this way over here with this sexual ethic. You ought to do it. If you can't, you don't want to. It's okay. The two are not connected. What I'm saying is that's not true. Mm-hmm. I agree that with that. Sexual ethic yeah. isn't the sexual ethic isn't put forward as this ancillary idea, but it's fundamental to what it means to live out the gospel in love in the world. And so, mm-hmm. if you reject it, you reject God, not men, is what it says in First Thessalonians, for example. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. I'm not saying that if you Good. like you commit something the Bible considers a sexual sin, you're not a Christian. I'm not saying that. Yeah, I, I think that's I just want to be really clear about that because I, what I said yeah. was not careful. Yeah, good. No, I think that's a really helpful clarification. And I, I want to offer a clarification of my own. I think the advice I was giving 
isn't meant to apply to just any issue within sexual ethics that's difficult for someone to like to to accept um i i, I want to just hedge very very like be very hedgy here and say that there are some theological issues concerning gender and sexuality where that seems entirely appropriate um, i'm thinking about women in ministry i'm thinking about women preaching there are people mm -hmm. who have strong convictions about what scripture teaches on that and there are people on the opposite side who have equally good convictions mm -hmm. that are, you know, they're, they're going to the same texts. Um, there's actually some really interesting, like recent research on uh, the passage in first Timothy two, um, trying to, you know, trying to make sense of what Paul is saying here. I think if someone has a hang up with what Paul says about women in ministry, I think in those cases, my intuition, I'd be curious to know what you all think. My intuition is that it's perfectly good to say, Hey, Look, if you have an issue with what Paul is saying there, the surface reading, please know that there are other people who think that Paul doesn't exactly mean what it, he seems to be saying. Even if I think I'm recommending a view that I don't think is true. Um, my intuition is that that's perfectly fine. But I, I concede uh, that there might be issues where that is not appropriate advice to give. Um, mm. So so I, I just I want to hedge. I'm not yeah. picking on any particular issue, but and sometimes I think the advice I'm giving works. And I think Nick is right. Sometimes it's just not going to be appropriate. Mm -hmm. What I hear you saying, the, the importance of what I hear you saying, Joel, is that there are many issues that we can get hung up on as Christians that we that it gets confusing and clouded to people who are coming to faith or who have these questions when really what they need is Jesus. They don't need to f believe what Paul says about women in a complementarian way first. They need to come to Jesus first and they need to know the gospel first. And when your mind is transformed into the mind of Christ, I mean, I've understood more and more scripture the longer I've been a Christian because I'm walking with the spirit and understanding it and deeper and deeper levels. And so there are things that do get worked out over time as you trust Christ and as your mind, when your mind is transformed and as you walk with the spirit. Yeah. Is that the like importance of what you're saying? That's how I, what I took away from what you said. I think it's, yeah, it's a really helpful way of putting it. Thanks for that. And I think it, I think it is what I'm saying. It's, it's another way of saying Christ is central um, but it's also a way of saying that if, you know, just imagine you're on this journey and you're exploring Christianity and you think, great, like I need to start with the gospels. I need to start with Jesus. But then you find out that if you become a Christian, there's mm -hmm. also this other view that you might have to latch on to say that like mm -hmm. women aren't allowed to preach in church. Right. Um, you might think, well, if my journey is going to take me to that conclusion, that's concerning. Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. we can even say ahead of time, hey, just so you know, there are other views on those passages that seem to support that. I think we mm -hmm. owe people that information because ultimately they have the responsibility to evaluate the evidence for themselves. Um, and so, yeah, I think I'm making sort of two points there. Okay. Yeah. That's a so, whole discussion in itself. Is there anything yeah. that you wanted to say, Joel, specifically about the stuff you said about oppressiveness focused on um, some of the things people think the Bible teaches it doesn't necessarily teach and maybe doesn't at all teach that Christian practice should mm -hmm. not be confused with Christian teaching always and mm -hmm. Christian teaching maybe shouldn't be confused with the right understanding of 
the scriptures or the teachings of Jesus and his apostles. In the area um, of sexuality, right? In the area of sexuality. Yeah. Um, is it, so I think that there's some stuff like that about framing it. But ultimately, do you, would you say that this is one of those questions that if you're going to answer it, you're going to have to dig in pretty deep? That this isn't a this like with with like the faith and reason one. I feel like that's the one. If I sit down with a student for twenty minutes, I'm like, <laughs> dude, do you even know what you're talking about when you say reason or yeah. evidence? Like, and I feel like you can kind of not complexify it for them. They go, oh, this is more complicated than I thought it was. Oh yeah, I see that. Now they don't become a Christian right away, but they realize that mm-hmm. objection is kind of silly. Like it's it is kind of a silly objection. The biblical one, you have to dig in a little bit to figure out what the evidence is. Like, well, how would you decide about an ancient document? How like it takes some work, right? The sexual ethics one feels like it takes some grappling. Like you can you can do the stuff you said, but at some point, if you're sitting down with like a young woman on campus, and she goes, "Okay, yeah, but like, are there Christian lesbians who have partners and loving sexual relationships, mm-hmm. or not? Is there like, can women be at the top levels of leadership in churches, or can't like, and and like at some point you have to say, okay, well now you might say." It's actually not good for you spiritually or ethically to answer questions that come later in an ethical process, earlier in ethical investigation. So if, if, you, if you're trying to decide, is God real? Is the God of the Bible the true God? And then you're going to determine whether or not that's true based on whether or not the ethical concerns that come later agree with you now. That's actually a really bad way to reason, Right. But if somebody believes in moral intuitionism, that are our, our really our best access to truth is our moral intuitions. And if they know early on that the Christianity is going to leave in a completely different direction, they might be like, well, I just, there's no way that I can believe this. So, so I, I, want, I wonder on this one if, like, what I have found with people with this is you have to get into the weeds. Mm-hmm. You have to talk about what sexuality is, what maleness and femaleness is, what does mm-hmm. gender mean? How does this, how do we think about it? Like, this is a seven hour discussion. Whereas I feel like the faith and reason one, the reason and evidence one to an open-minded person is much shorter. Mm. It's, it's more of a facile objection. There are, yes, there are much more complicated versions of it, but I find with the, with the sexuality one, it's hard to answer that one in 10 minutes. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. It's, it is very tricky, very, very complicated. And you do have to get into the weeds in many cases. Um, yeah, I'm not sure I have anything more to add to what you're saying other than just to affirm like how difficult it is. And mm. um, because because, yeah. because like one of the issues you're talking about, like egalitarianism, like is there a difference in gender roles for men and women in the local church and in the family? See, with that one, you can say, well, look, there's multiple biblical views. Egalitarians mm-hmm. believe that there isn't right. a, a universal distinction and therefore the your fear is not necessarily going to be realized. You move over to LGBT questions. Mm-hmm. And th- that can get thornier because because now, yes, there is a difference of opinion, but the difference of opinion is smaller within people, groups of people who believe in the scriptures. And the scriptural evidence is, it's more difficult in my view. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That's fair. I think, I think you do have, to, I think, so, yeah, if you, if you hold that view, then I think you have to, you probably will have to get into the weeds right away. But I think there's still a, a sort of, there's still a point about methodology that's worth making here that we cannot hang our hat on one issue, right? And so even if you have to get into the weeds about a, a certain view of sexual ethics, 
Um, you also have to get into the weeds of the evidences for Christianity, um, because you know a principle of rationality says you know I think I think um, I think this is a true principle of rationality right. that you need to make your judgments based on all the available evidence uh, there is, right. um, and so I think saying to someone, yes, I want to consider that question about sexuality. Let's go there, but I also think it's important for us to think about the gospels, and it's important for us to ask ourselves. Mm-hmm. Are the gospels substantially reliable? Does God exist? Did Jesus rise from the dead? Those questions are also important. And it's not, a, it's not an evasive maneuver. No, it's a way of trying to, re- to reckon with all the available evidence that bears on the questions yeah. um, and that will end evidence up bearing is- on the sexual questions as well. So I think we have to go in right. both directions. We're going to have to have those immediate conversations about sexual ethics, but we're also going to have to have the conversations about uh, the evidence for Christianity. And we should really pull people back in that direction. I think it's mm-hmm. too easy for people to fixate on one issue and forget Mm. that there are other considerations that make a world of difference to whether or not uh, we should, you know, commit ourselves Mm -hmm. to a particular sexual ethic or, or a particular Mm -hmm. way of life. And so we we need to train people to also think about the the total evidence and not just a particular um, moral Mm. issue. Let me try to frame this in a a simpler way. So, um, there's a, there, one one philosopher said, said this one time when giving a talk on on the problem of evil, right? Why is there evil in the world if God is good? And he said, let's say you believe on average, like or on balance, the argument against God because there's evil in the world is better. Like it's more likely God doesn't exist. Let's say you think that. He said, but let's say you look at another area of question, like how did the universe come into existence, right? And you believe based on the cosmological argument on balance there it's it, it's it's more likely a god does exist right he's mm-hmm. like well you got to put those then against each other right like and if you believe for example in an argument from design or you believe that jesus rose from the dead well if you believe jesus rose from the dead and that god is the best explanation for the creation of the universe but that you think there's an issue with the problem of suffering now you got to balance those out with each other and he right. said he said i believe in an interdisciplinary way even if i believe the problem of suffering made on balance it more likely that a loving God exists for five or six or seven or 57 other reasons. I believe on balance, a loving God does exist. And so that overwhelms the objection of the problem of suffering. And so therefore I believe Mm -hmm. a loving God exists. And I I think what you're saying is, is something similar. I'd say one other objection too. I came to Jesus. By the way, thank you. That was really, really good way of framing what I was saying. Yeah. Well, you're welcome. Uh, the, the other is like, let's say, so let's say I came to Jesus when I was 15 or 16 years old. Okay. So I'm pubescent. I definitely want to have sex with a girl. Right. And I know beforehand that the Bible is going to tell me I can't have sex with a girl until I get married. Right. And I say, okay, then I can't believe in Christianity. Right. Mo- most of us would recognize in that situation, that's fairly shallow. Sure. Sure. Um, but when it, we put it in other sexual categories, it doesn't seem that way. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think, though, that's because the, the objection isn't, I want this, therefore Christianity is false, or I want this, therefore I won't be a Christian. A Christian. The, obje- the objection, as I understand it, is that it seems intuitively clear that this is good and mm-hmm. permissible, and Christianity is implying that it's not. And that's a, that's a substantive theoretical mm-hmm. objection, and not just a kind of psychological, um, emotive rejection does that make sense yeah it, it does but you did say intuitively clear that it's substantive and that feels a little bit like slate of hand right because intuition is a very complicated form of conceptualization right and yet sometimes we act like what we intuit morally in relationship to sexuality is somehow really clear 
And I, th- I mean, I suspect you might dispute that too, but I would certainly dispute that. Right. I think just because our intuitions are feel clear. It's like, you know, mm-hmm. why do you kill somebody? Cause you're really angry. Like anger makes you feel really clear about things. And that's very intuitive in your conceptualization. It could be completely false and disproportionate too. Like yeah. our minds work in interesting ways. Can make you feel like you're thinking clearly. <laughs> yeah. I'm not but sure that's what I intensely. have in mind or philo- what philosophers have in mind by intuitions. But I think Jill, you okay. were going to make a point. I just wanted to create space for that. I think some of this, especially with this question of sexuality and if it's oppressive is so, I don't think you can reason your way into convincing someone that it's true to a certain extent because it's so relational. And I think wrapped up in the question of is sexuality, the Christian view of sexuality oppressive is the question of is God good in that he wants me to be happy. And so I do think people need to see and experience people who are Christians who are happy (laughs) and living in a way that is um, according to the Christian sexual ethic and are flourishing. There needs to be that experience to know that what God says is good. Because I think that's what people are doubting. People are doubting, well, they're wondering if they're going to be miserable forever if they submit to what God says. Right. And to know that... In all no, kinds you of won't be. Yeah, in all kinds of ways. and But especially in the area of sexuality, which is so core. I mean, that's equivalent to identity right now in people's minds. Um, and so, and it is an expression of our identity. That's true. So I think that there is a certain extent where we could reason all we want with people about the Christian sex- sexual ethic. And it's not going to get us, it's not going to be enough evidence, like we were talking about earlier, for people because of the intuition, maybe this is using intuition, not in a philosophical sense, but because of the experiential intuition of what will make them happy and make them have a fulfilled life. Yeah. That's really, I think that's really insightful. And you're right to say that a a lot of this isn't going to, the arguments aren't going to make a difference um, all the time. They're going to help. But at the end of the day, people need an encounter with the good and beautiful God that Jesus knew. And they need an encounter with the good and beautiful life that Jesus lived. And that encounter is going to happen through the witness of the church. It's going to happen through Mm. you and I, and people need to have their, have their defenses sort of disarmed by the the beautiful love of Jesus. And Mm -hmm. so I, I think you're absolutely right that in part, they just need to taste and see that the Lord is good. And I think a lot of my own, my own reservations, um, are intellectual, but some of my reservations in life with Christianity have, have been those sort of existential ones. And it, it wasn't until I really encountered the goodness and beauty of God that I thought, you know what, I can do this. Like he, mm-hmm. this being is trustworthy. He's worth following. He's worth it all because look how good and beautiful he is. And the arguments kind of gave me some intellectual cognitive reason to think that, mm-hmm. but my heart needed to see it. And so insofar yeah. as that's in line with what you're saying, I, I totally, mm-hmm. I totally mm-hmm. agree with what you're, what you're getting so, at. Yeah, to kind of bring us full circle here is that really is what I got when I from reading Kierkegaard was mm-hmm. that stepping out in faith was not so much stepping beyond the evidence, but that you may step beyond evidence because in what you had already believed in coming to believe in God, you be, you actually believe in the God who is personal. Mm-hmm. And the way you walk trusting in a person is very different than the way you walk trusting in a 
in a, a, an ideology or a dead religion or yes, whether it was right. dead Lutheranism right. that he was fighting in Denmark, which so much of his writing was aimed at, at nominal Lutheranism or whether it was a, a kind of, of secular intellectualism. He, he said, when you know God, the person, then stepping out in faith is a is a relational action of meaning, and you you just do it, as mm-hmm. opposed to the idea that like, well, is there enough rational evidence for me to ascribe to axiom A? Mm-hmm. He's like, it's totally different. It's a totally right. different thing. Yeah. And I I think that that is kind of what Joel is saying is like people have to when you experience a trustworthy God, there's a lot of ideas you can accept because they're wrapped up in accepting the whole of that person and how mm-hmm. he's spoken and shown himself. That's good. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, at some point, these things have to be cut off. Um, yeah, it may be helpful to have Joel back on some other topics. I'm going to mm-hmm. ask him for some of his, his his writing after this on a couple of things, and and then yeah, we'll we're see planning about on having it. Paul, Paul Copan on. I'm not sure that <laughs> let's talk about ethics. animal ethics with Paul yeah. Copan. I really want to. I, really <laughs> I want still to have so many that. questions about at, what that is. Oh, even the, bo- oh, the book is about farms. whether or not it's Christians should eat meat. Factory farms. It's really yeah, yeah, yeah. So so it's like about. Whether you should be vegan? There's two things. No, whether not, yeah. So whether oh. or not you should eat meat, and then also whether or not the way we produce meat is ethical. Right. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. And so I, I like, for example, I believe eating meat is ethical, and I think the way we produce mm-hmm. meat probably isn't. Okay. Interesting. Right. And so then. All right. So so, but there's some people who believe that you, yeah. eating meat isn't ethical. Therefore, the production of meat is categorically not ethical. Mm-hmm. And, right. And then apparently, it sounds like from what Joel is saying that a lot of the writers in Paul's book is you can eat meat and the way we produce it is ethical or it's predominantly yeah. ethical. Yeah, b- basically. And it goes back to this point. Like if, if God were to give us revelation, how surprising would it be if it kind of just told us, yeah, keep doing what you're doing. Like the way you consume perfectly fine. And this is a caricature of the book, but in some ways I came away feeling that way. Like, Oh, my consumption patterns and the way we raise animals is perfectly fine. We don't need to change anything. Yeah. That, I would just be so surprised if that was true. And I think that Christianity and philosophical arguments suggest that it's not true. We need to make, make some adjustments, mm. but yeah. issue for well, another time. Well, maybe yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see continued. about whether maybe we'll come on a couple of times <laughs> and we can talk about issues. Yeah. And he's great. Faith I just then, want to say that. Get it. He's amazing. But Hey, listen, I do think that the ethics of food is a big deal. Yeah. I, I think, and I think yeah. it's hard for people to imagine grappling with it, but like Alexi and I have, st- I mean, like I grow hundreds of pounds of food in our garden. We have chickens. Like there are ways in which, I mean, some of it is just taste. I hate the way store-bought chicken eggs taste. I can't stand them. They're sure. disgusting. Mm-hmm. They're tasteless and they taste sick to me. And the chickens that get to walk around and use their legs and then lay eggs and eat various things. It's just anyway, so I'm I'm kind of on board with that whole yeah. thing, though I'm I'm definitely like a, eating meat is ethical according to the Bible. Sure, sure. Just like as an idea. Anyway, that's a, a topic for a different time. Maybe maybe I can read the book and we can have a discussion on the issue of meat ethics. You can yeah. record it and we'll see what happens. You know. Yeah. 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 Someone pointed so, out to right. me that you you made a comment about chickens that was really provocative on the sermon. I missed the beginning part about of your sermon this past this past Sunday, but was that it? Oh no no something else. Never mind. Yeah, I quote. Yeah. I, I talked about the road to Wigan Pier and about like just how people get used to eating disgusting foods, <laughs> and how people did that in the coal mining towns in northern England. But like, there's certain, oh, yeah. certain ways in which we that happens to us here. Like, people think that non whole milk tastes good. People th- people think that most people have never even had raw milk. They don't even 
Anyway, sorry, what, this is a podcast. This is this is a this is a, this is a whole other thing. Yeah, it's yeah. Yeah. very interesting so, to anyway, me. So, Joel, thank you so much for being yeah. with us. Uh, this is the longest podcast we've ever done, I think, <laughs> or it's in the top three certainly. <laughs> and we just started another topic. Yeah, so we, yeah. So, we'll, so anyway, yeah. thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks for the stuff you've been teaching. Um, mm-hmm. Keep looking in the bulletins and things like that for Joel teaching ethics classes and so on. Mm-hmm. He's also, I think, talked to the youth and he's talked mm-hmm. to college groups and. We appreciate you doing that because giving people a reason to believe we don't believe is against faith, but mm-hmm. is supportive and conducive to faith. And we just, we want our kids and our adults and people who don't believe to get on that right boat and get the heck out of the Harbor. Um, yeah. and Amen. to experience the beauty of being on the ocean and to escape the storm. So, um, we appreciate what you're doing and we're, and we're, we know that it's hard work to be in academia sometimes mm-hmm. though. It's also can be fun and exhilarating and a great yeah. and wonderful calling it can also feel lonely sometimes and difficult, and we appreciate the ways in which you serve and suffer for the church in those ways. Well, I just I'm really grateful for the opportunity and want to return those encouraging words that uh, each of you, uh, Nick and Jill, you're doing incredible work for the kingdom, and uh, you make High Point such an inviting uh, place. So keep it up. You're doing doing amazing work. Praise God. Sweet. Thanks, um, Joel. If you guys like Joel, and if you like guests. And if you have more questions, please let us know positive feedback, what you like, because we want to do more of it. Um, as you, as our listeners, we want to give you what you want to hear and answer the questions you have. So you can email us at podcast at highpointchurch.org. So yeah. I'm going to email Paul, Paul Copin right now. All right. All right. We'll be yeah. back again soon. All right, Bye, guys. guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.